Hello tech lore enthusiasts and welcome to 2021. I hope you ushered the new year in in true tech lore style, sitting antisocially, and that is important, antisocially by your computer watching videos of robots at Boston Dynamics, dancing to Do You Love Me, living vicariously through the movements of their metal limbs, remembering the good old days of New Year's Eve 2019. I'm sure we're all looking forward to something like normal, but what normal is, is always changing. The pace of technological advancement has not slowed during the pandemic, nor have efforts to create rules to govern those changes. Focusing specifically on AI today, we're going to be speaking to Matt Harvey. Matt is Head of Artificial Intelligence at Gowling WLG and advises on artificial intelligence across all sectors including automotive, life sciences, finance and retail. And he's here today because he is co-editor of The Law of Artificial Intelligence, which was published on the 15th of December, and is a key practitioner's reference text or textbook examining how areas of current civil and criminal law will apply to AI and examining emerging laws specific to the uses of the technology. Matt, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today, talking really about the law of artificial intelligence. I just wanted to ask a bit about what was the process of getting that getting that together? Um, how did that come about? Is that a publisher-led thing or is that coming from you? Or I'd been interested in AI since about 2011, starting with self-driving cars, where there were really clear liability issues. And I realized over time that the issues I was seeing there really applies to any use of AI and it doesn't need a robot to cause harm. Software alone can cause harm. And I've been collating issues uh, and approaches as being published by certainly US policymakers, the EU especially. And really I saw that there were no books um, or, or such books that there were mainly for the US market were just collections of essays on, on narrow topics. And I really wanted to see a book like the kind I used for my IP work, things like the law of patents. Um, and I had the idea of doing this book. And I asked a barrister I know very well, Matthew Levy, who's really quite brilliant technically in terms of software programming and the like. And he already had connections with Sweet and Maxwell and had written chapters for books. And he reached out to them. We did a book proposal. We wrote uh, an outline, a contents page, and some samples of parts of chapters. And they accepted the idea. Um, so that's my experience, but I don't know what happens generally. So your aim was to come up with a holistic account of AI as it, as it stands right now? That's right. Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's an expression that there's no law of the horse and so you shouldn't write a book about the law of a horse if there isn't a statute on horses, if it's just about the normal uh, policies and uh, case law on, uh, you know, I don't know, property rights or the like, but it just happens to be about the horse. But I think AI is different uh, in that it raises certain fundamental issues which haven't really been encountered before. And also that lawmakers and regulators around the world are genuinely attending to the issues and planning new laws and regulations. So there's, a, there's a, actually a, a very small number of actual laws which have been passed specific to AI already. So for example, in the UK, we have laws about 
how insurance should be adopted for self-driving cars. We've had for some time uh, the positioning copyright and design rights for computer-generated works. Um, and in the GDPR, there is Article 22, which is about the need to explain a fully automated decision with significant impacts for someone. But really, the book was about applying current issues, uh, sorry, current case law to these new issues we could all identify and really predicting what would happen and then sketching out where regulators seem to be going with a problem. But there was enough there we felt to create a book. And actually, I have to say, to my surprise, we ended up with a really meaty books, over 600 pages. Um, and that surprised me, frankly, uh, how much there was to say in the end. But we had to start somewhere. It's just the first edition. Working alongside sort of fellow colleagues who are, who are kind of specialists and you as the editor overseeing the process, do you feel like that is, is a really tremendous position to be in because you can soak up all the knowledge and also get this kind of cross-practice view of the various different chapters taking shape? Oh, oh 100%. And, and I think it's been absolutely amazing um, to have that privileged position of being able to just see emerging, let's say, something like the use of AI in legal services or the use of AI in the justice system or criminal law and AI, areas I would never get involved in normally. And, and to see, you know, primary research being crystallized. But I, I think really that concept of the holistic uh, view of, of the field, that is my most important takeaway. And so to, to give you an idea of that, my specialism is intellectual property. So, you know, I naturally knew all about the effect of AI on patents um, and copyright and the like, but I also did a huge amount of research of the book and crystallized all of that and had to go into all of the nooks and crannies I might not have considered if I hadn't been doing a book. But that holistic point is that you understand that trade secrets is probably the de facto way to protect artificial intelligence, but the, the danger to trade secrets is if in some way you're going to have to disclose the workings of your AI, or it could be reverse engineered. And, and here's where the holistic view comes in, because to understand those risks, first, you have to know about the technology. You have to know whether a reverse engineering is a real risk. And that means conversations with the people who did the technology chapter to understand those risks. And also to understand across all of law where you might need to disclose aspects of your invention or your AI, which would mean that a trade secret isn't going to work. So it's things like uh, the basic market. Um, so there's a global shortage of AI specialists. That means that demand outstrips supply and specialists move from company to company. And so there's a disclosure risk there, which means it may be a monopoly right, such as a patent is more important. And then all sorts of regulatory pressures. So the, the evolving um, status of product approvals and medicine approvals and what disclosures they will require. And then, as I already mentioned, uh, the need to explain automated decision-making under the GDPR and the emergence, we think soon, of regulations to AI in general, which might require, for example, proof of the elimination of bias. So it's that holistic view which informs even something like IP to have all of these different areas of law to come together so you can give really rounded advice. So do you think for for us as sort of students of the law at this point, really taking a kind of broad approach to these many different 
aspects, sort of looking at IP, looking at data protection, looking at competition law, that's really kind of going to set us up moving forward into the future of, of what a lawyer might be expected to know and do? Um, I would think if you have the ability to do that and the time and the inclination, yes, it's a great differentiator. Um, I think we have been in a period of time where more and more people specialize into ever smaller areas. And there's always going to be a unique place for people who can see across multiple areas. That said, in the market, um, you know, that is really what general counsel does uh, as opposed to private uh, practice lawyers. So, you know, we shall see um, how the market evolves. But I could well see the case where, let's say something like AI, where a huge range of companies are having to dip their toe into an area forced upon them by market competition. And AI has application across any industry, which means that the GCs, if there is one at a company, may be overwhelmed by these new developments. So I think if, if in-house, sorry, if, if practice, private practice lawyers um, have that holistic view, there could be a real market for it. Zooming back out, I guess, a little bit to your role as, as the editor of this textbook. When you've got areas as diverse as criminal law and, and IP law, I mean, were you able to sort of discern some linkages between them or some common themes there to share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the whole genesis of the book was certain technical features of AI, which would clearly raise legal concerns. And I would list among those um, the lack of transparency, the so-called black box problem, that if a machine programs a machine, you know you don't necessarily understand what that program does or will do or how, how it operates. You can test its outputs and, and decide that in the test cases you've tried, it gives you appropriate results. But you don't really know how it works. There's a risk of bias in the training data. There's what's called brittleness. So an AI may perform very well in certain circumstances and then fail in hard to predict and really quite dramatic ways when it's outside of those specific circumstances. And its, its behavior may evolve um, in the field. And all of that means you may have unintended consequences and you don't know who's to blame for that. And, and I think those issues which touch on um, intention, on uh, negligence, on liability in general, really go throughout all areas of the law and we need to figure out how they would play out. And there is legislation in the, in the works or regulation in the works to tackle many of those. And then the other general theme is you have a technology capable of acting autonomously but that entity isn't uh, doesn't have any legal status and so that affects certainly everything from ip to criminal law to tort uh, and whether there should be some sort of legal status for ai or some default position so that you know who of the many actors involved in ai should be to blame because AI is a technology currently where many people typically collaborate on a project. So the people who supply the data, the data scientists who analyze the data, the, uh, the entity that's commissioned the work, um, maybe someone who supplied the AI 
platform and then the user themselves may uh, influence its behavior by giving it further training. And so dividing all of that up to figure out who's liable um, is a real conundrum that certainly um, the EU and uh, the European Parliament, for example, have been looking at very closely. And do you get the sense from these challenges that law is now holding technologies advanced back? Uh, I think it's a very mixed picture. So it's clear that despite the legal and regulatory uncertainty, there is absolutely massive investment and deployment of AI going on. And in my own field, IP, it's very unclear that you can get a lot of um, certainly patents uh, for AI innovations, but that hasn't stopped, for example, the car industry literally investing in the scale of billions in the technology because competitive forces are such that they have to invest in this no matter whether they're going to get IP out of it. So I think market forces are, are driving this regardless of the law, but there are some specific areas and I think autonomous vehicles is one. I think medicines are, is another area where there are either legal hurdles um, or regulatory approval hurdles, which are yet to be resolved. And so um, it is often said that self-driving cars are technically ready. Now, there's a lot of hot air and hype about that. They should have been on the road by now, certainly according to Ford and others. And that's been sort of put off and put off. So it's hard to know if they are ready. But what US commentators have certainly said is there's at least five or six years work just changing the laws to make them legal, even if they are ready technically. And do you think there's politically the appetite to go about advancing these laws or is sort of their level of distrust there or it's a really interesting point and you know i have a good friend who specializes in such areas and he was adamant five years ago that the liability risks were such that no government would touch it um but it's been a hundred percent the opposite so every government around the world i say that I, i'm exaggerating but literally um uh, AI is a fundamental part of the industrial strategy of most developed nations at the moment. And they are very keen to see the economic benefits of AI in their own countries, and they want their countries to be the innovators. And so to take the UK as an example, when it came to autonomous vehicles, they were very deliberate in putting in place what was a self-consciously rolling uh, program of uh, legislative reform, because they didn't want to slow down development at all. So they immediately put in place guidelines for testing and said that they will uh, continuously assess the technological field so that they can essentially get out of the way in time to allow it to happen. But to give you a general view of, of lawmaking, and again, two examples from my own field, IP, it, there is a general problem that the law lags behind technological change dramatically. So the video recorder, um, came out in the UK and, and obviously globally and allowed you to record broadcast TV. But that, in fact, remained copyright infringement until the law was changed 13 years after the launch of video recorders. 
Similarly, when the MP3 player came out and allowed you to rip CDs into a different format so that you could listen to it on an MP3 player, again, it took, again, by coincidence, 13 years for the UK um, Parliament to try to change the law to make that legal. In fact, it was quashed in the end, uh, the, the reforms. So there is a, a, tra- a, tra- there is a long track record of um, of lawmakers being very slow, but I think in this case AI the, the economic benefits are so great that lawmakers are very conscious to try to get out of the way and to enable it as fast as possible. And many lawmakers are deliberately talking about having future-proof, uh, wide definitions um, in law to try to be as flexible as possible. You're pretty optimistic for 2021. I definitely think that governments around the world are behind AI and want to make it work. We've certainly seen what's called an AI winter before now. This is, but this is a, an investment issue where the performance just didn't live up to the hype and research and, and commercial investment dried up. But, but machine learning seems to be really quite different. And it is solving previous intractable problems like uh, self-driving cars. And the real risks are things like damage to privacy, uh, loss of employment, growing inequality. But I think those are long-term trends. They might be accelerated by AI, but they're certainly not uh, only at the door of AI. But yeah, lawmakers are trying to get ahead of that. The EU has published its guidelines specifically for trustworthy AI, and it's really about ensuring safety and robustness and protection for privacy very much to make this a successful uh, social development. Um, And the EU is incredibly keen to regulate uh, AI to make it safe for, for Europe. In fact, it was supposed to happen this year and was only delayed by COVID. But it is a key policy of the of current uh, EU president. And um, the EU believes strongly that clear rules in the EU would encourage inward investment. And also, if they are the first mover on EU regulation, they can export European values to other countries. Similarly, in the UK, we have the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, and that is also working on guidelines or even formal regulation for the use of trustworthy AI in the UK. And really around the world, um, regulators are beginning to get involved. And it seems often, even where there isn't a specific body to do so, uh, the body that normally looks after privacy uh, is expanding its role to look at AI in general. And that's, for example, something my Canadian colleagues are seeing at the moment. But there's a there's a fundamental issue which, I, which you picked up on, which is, of course, that ultimately these machine learning, uh, you know, the, the black boxes, they're ultimately very few people actually know what goes into those black boxes, what's actually causing the decisions and, uh, you know, why the GDPR required that decisions be explainable. Um, is that really at the heart of it? Is there some kind of solution to at once have these allow this technology to flourish, which goes far beyond perhaps what we could understand in terms of the decision-making, but on the other side, engender trust and some form of, of certainty or understanding, perhaps? Um, it's certainly a key challenge, and it is um, partly technological and partly legal. And so DARPA, the, uh, the U.S. research um, body uh, for the U.S. Army, uh, explainable AI has been a specific 
tool, a specific aim of theirs for some years now. Um, and, you know, countless researchers are trying to tackle this issue from a technological uh, standpoint. But in terms of legal solutions, there are many stopgap or maybe permanent solutions. So for many deployments of AI, people will keep a human in the loop so that it isn't just an AI making those decisions. Or you partition your technology. There are parts which are a black box, which no one understands, including the data scientists. I mean, the black box is is, is utter. You know, but if there is no one who understands how this machine has made its decisions. But you can have, um, let's say, in a self-driving car, you can have a module in the AI that knows the speed limit and simply doesn't allow them, the car to exceed a speed limit. And it doesn't go through the black box, it goes through a different part. So it may be that you can partition your product so that the black box elements are acceptable risks or those bits have human oversight. It leads actually perfectly on to my final question, which is that at the SCL, we've, we have a student essay prize every year. And this year, the, the question is, is this, there is increasing concern that machine learning tools embed bias in their operations and outputs. To what extent does the law currently provide adequate protection or adequate redress in respect of any such discrimination? And I guess it leads nicely on from what you were, you were talking about. But yeah, what would your thoughts be on that, on that question? Oh, I think it's a great question. I'm glad your students are being asked to think about it. Um, I, it's certainly not easy, and that is certainly an issue of significant concern for, for example, the EU. Um, and I would definitely look at what they are saying because the EU is obviously proposing uh, new laws. Um, but some of their papers will have appendices of what they feel the current law is. And so that might give you a leg up. I'd also look at what the Center for Data Ethics and Innovation are doing. Um, but really, I would have thought your key uh, areas of, of interest will be the Consumer Protection Act and the law of negligence. And a lot of that will be to do with what is best practice when it comes to eliminating bias. And the interesting factor there is that it's not merely the simple framework of those laws, but also when assessing what was uh, the proper standard of care, for example, in negligence, it can be that um, best practice in industry or government guidelines can actually inform that assessment. And things like um, the EU's guidance on trustworthy AI arguably has created a soft area uh, of, of the law which might create responsibilities via negligence or the Consumer Protection Act because companies should know to take uh, due consideration of these risks of bias. Matt, such a pleasure to have you, have you talking to us today. Um, yeah, I wish you all the best in 2021. Thank you. You too. It's been a delight. Thanks.